Do you have any thoughts or questions from anything that's gone before? No? All right. Then we'll just start right in. What we're doing here is we are on sutra number, we're still in uh, the Samadhi Pada, we're in sutra number 1-8. And when I look back to sutras number 1.5 and 1.6, um, he says there are five classifications of rittis, painful and painless. That was number 1.5. And then 1.6 is, these rittis are right and wrong conception of what is imagination, sleep, and memory. And what we're doing now is we're, we're repeating those. And last time we talked about, among other things, what right understanding is. This is he saying that these are vrittis, even the right understanding is still a vritti. This is a, a little bit of a hint um, of a reality that's just very hard to grasp from this point of view, which is the extent to which all our thoughts and all the agitation of the mind is a distraction from what is. Um, when... Uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was speaking on Sunday and I was talking about really trying to understand Swamiji's transition from his own point of view, from his point of view. And I was referencing the way Kirtani talked about the way the room felt just minutes after Swamiji had breathed his last and really left his body finally. And she talked about a stillness that was so far beyond any stillness that had ever even that she had ever even imagined. And I I was speaking then, when I was speaking on Sunday, about no heartbeat, no breath, no life force in the cells sort of multiplying and doing their reality, no oscillation in the brain, no thoughts. And, and, And yet, you see, after all of that ceases, consciousness is still present. And it's... Again, the mind can only go so far in terms of actually grasping what it means, but it it does help us to um, at least have some idea, tranquil, unbroken thrill. Um, So Swamiji's, all of the activity, all the wave, all the wave on the surface of the ocean ceased, and all that was there was the ocean of spirit, which of course also the other side of that extraordinary stillness is when everything becomes one, there's no place for movement, you see. Movement requires that there be some... um, There have to be two realities for there to be movement. When there's only one reality, nothing, no place to go, nothing to do. No time, no space, no movement. So we tend to think, in terms of the spiritual path, that right understanding is actual spiritual progress. But Patanjali tells us that even right understanding is still a vritti because there's still some movement of energy. But of course, right understanding takes us where, in the direction of where we're trying to go and wrong understanding takes it away from us. So not all vrittis are equal in terms of where we're trying to be, except in the end, they all have to go away. That's why Swamiji sometimes says the only uh, good karma is no karma. Good karma still keeps you moving and ultimately where we want to go is someplace else entirely. That's also partly the origin of that a message that Swamiji sent us at Easter time um, that was so disconcerting to some people because it appeared so much like a goodbye message, which indeed it was, 
um, where he just said nothing. There's absolutely nothing. And he even said, I have no happy memories, not of anything external. And that was very disconcerting, again, to people, because they, the way they read it uh, was somehow a repudiation of the life we've had together. But what he was really saying was anything outside of that absolute stillness does not look attractive to me, because that's how he put it. And it's interesting, because now in Patanjali, one of the definitions of riti is memory. And he talks about how we're trapped by all, all the memories that come in front of us, that come in front of our consciousness that we hold. And you can see that even the positive memories would hold us away uh, from that state of perfect bliss. But you see, it's all relative in the sense that depending on where you're standing, forward is in different directions. Where we stand, right concept, right imagination, right memory, is all forward moving. From where Swamiji was standing, especially at the very end there, all of it was a distraction from where he needed to go forward. Um, That's a very important balance on the spiritual path. Otherwise, we become quite confused as to what's appropriate for us. Um, This morning I was remembering, and some of you were there, in the last few years... Swamiji was very, very frank about many things that people don't like to hear about. And he often talked about the the complete delusion of sexuality. Whereas before, he either didn't touch the subject very often or he he gave us a little more space around it. But now with so many Naya Swamis and so many people really embracing a, a, a repudiation of all that binds us, um, he really gave this very strong talk. It, it was like spiritual Inuvik or something like that about um, overcoming that delusion. At the end of which, a young woman who had been born and raised in the community, um, and who is in maybe 30 years old, she stood up and with great courage, she said to Swamiji, Swamiji, is sex bad? And he looked at her and said, oh, don't worry about it. Just like that. (laughs) In other words, I wasn't talking to you. You know, that wasn't your teaching. You'll know when it's relevant for you, and don't worry about it now. But, it, it, but at the same time, he, he didn't repudiate anything he said. He just said, Don't, it's not for you to think about. Forward for you is other things right now. It's not, that's, not the, that's not the appropriate place for you to, to be planting yourself and declaring victory. But that didn't make what he said untrue. It was just relative. So even when we're working with Patanjali here, right and wrong concepts, we have to understand sort of how the balance is. And what I was starting to say is, one of the great challenges on the spiritual path is to have the self-confidence to be able to know what is appropriate for you to be working on. And not to, either out of misplaced pride, think, oh, well, I, that's the best. I mean, there was, I had a conversation with someone once about the Nayaswami order, and they said they wanted to take the Nayaswami vow which was not an appropriate vow. Why? Well, that's the top vow. <laughs> I mean, just sort of thinking that the, the right way, because that's how we're ambitious, when we're ambitious in a worldly sense. That's the best college, I'll get into that college. It's, we don't think in terms of what's really in balance for me. So, so we have to um, be able to do that on the path. That's why Patanjali is really challenging. Because he doesn't... Uh, he doesn't give you a lot of fluff. 
You just have to think about it. Yes, Stephen, where's the microphone? I, I wanted to ask a question just to clarify what you'd said initially regarding uh, Swami and this absolute stillness. Right. We often talk about a point of reference in the spiritual path. I know it's something that I offer pretty... I try to clarify it as much as possible in classes that I give uh -huh. at times, this idea of referring everything to that that fixed point of reference, right. which is God, ultimately. Right. So in, a, in this situation of Swami's, would it be simple enough to say there was nothing left to refer to because he was one with that point of reference? Yes, yeah, that would be exactly right. There was no other. Yeah. There's, there was only one. Yeah, easy, perfect. Easy enough. Easy enough. <laughs> easy enough to verbalize. <laughs> But, you know, we hint at it. It's in the poem Samadhi a lot. When I started, uh, yesterday, Sunday, when we were having the memorial service at the village, uh, someone had read the poem Samadhi at one of the meditations, and the words of the Samadhi poem really had sort of somehow new dynamic meaning. There's a lot of images in there that really help you. I mean, I, I, had a, I really enjoyed meditating on um, the sea exists without the waves, but the wave breathes not without the sea. That was a way to put me more into the picture because being a wave, I could think more about where the power of the wave comes from. It was easier for me to think of that than the idea of the wave not being there at all because <laughs> I'm just too much of a wave. <laughs> yeah, and, and it just helps. Uh, but the images are very powerful. That's why he said to memorize that poem and repeat it because the images just endlessly expand. Yeah, very good. Okay, Sarah, did you have a question? No, okay. So, the sutra that we're coming to is, last week we did right understanding, comes from um, direct perception, inference, and valid authority. Number 1.8 says, wrong understanding is mistaking the true nature of that which is being considered. Now, so that means that we look at that which is really God and the infinite in front of us and we think it's something else. We look at cause and effect in our life. Swamiji, uh, Master said somewhere that because the experiences of our life come sequentially from our perception, we think that one thing is causing another. <laughs> that was just one of those marvelous uh, Thoughts. We, we think that there's a sequence because we experience it as a sequence. We, we think there's a, a cause and effect at play here. And yes, on one level there is, but if you go to the idea of infinite time and the image of time that we've offered where you're standing in the eternal now, everything's happening simultaneously and cause and effect isn't even really there. It just depends on your perspective. This is all wrong understanding. is mistaking one, uh, the true nature of that which is being considered. Now the fact is, until we're in God consciousness, we're always mistaking the true nature of that which is being considered, which is why right and wrong perception is a vritti. It's not the smooth, one-pointed flow of energy. It's in some way, with some pinpoint, holding the energy in a whirlpool. It keeps it moving. Now, Swamiji starts by talking about essentially false visions. And I have to confess that I'm not... I don't know whether this is the verse which is sometimes 
translated false visions or if false visions comes later. But one of the things that Patanjali speaks of, and actually I think it, re- it re- comes in again later, when he talks about obstacles to the spiritual path, and one of the obstacles is false visions. And it's a very, very delicate subject to work with um, from the outside. And I've been in this position a lot of times and I know how tricky it is. And so the only way that we can really protect ourselves from this is to take very seriously what Swamiji is writing here. Because he says, in meditation one may observe angels, saints, and heavenly lights. I have known people to guide their lives by such vision, and I have known them to make many great mistakes in their lives as a consequence. Because here's the point. How do you tell true visions from false, true inner voices from false, and how to tell true spiritual experiences from merely an overactive imagination. And once a person becomes persuaded that they're having true experiences, even if it's obvious to an outsider that the level of what's coming to them is not as elevated as the person himself would like it to be, if the person is persuaded, it is almost impossible to unravel that. I'm not sure if I mentioned in this class that I made a... I was faced once with a very difficult decision with a man who thought he was having samadhi. And he was not. Whether he was having actually any experience at all, I really cannot say. And I really had to decide whether to just let him believe what he was asserting or whether to oppose him. I chose to oppose him, and to this day he has never spoken to me again. Because he was completely convinced, and all he could think of was that I had to be wrong, because he was certain he was right. And I don't know whether I should have just left him alone and let him unravel it on his own or not. I really don't know. Um, I was seriously concerned for his mental balance, but I think it may have still been the wrong decision. So I say to all of you, merely because unusual things happen to you, there are many levels within our consciousness from which unusual things can happen. Even uh, on Sunday when I was speaking about, um, which was really humorous, about uh, a dream I had that included Swamiji that was just so comical, Um, where, I mean, most of you heard it, but Lakshman was pointing out to me that Swami had a grammatical mistake on his face. And I had to to go to Swamiji and examine his face and then say to to Lakshman, announce to Lakshman that, no, whereas between his sideburn and his lip, you thought it was a period, which was grammatically incorrect. In fact, it was a dash, which was grammatically correct. (laughs) Just a complete ridiculous dream. The point of the dream was that when Swami looked at me in the dream and began to laugh. And I was saying to everyone, you know, we all experience from Swamiji that moment when the bubble of joy just bursts. Whether he's reading P.G. Woodhouse, telling us a story, sitting and just talking, something will happen. And all of a sudden, everything stops. And there's this quality of... uh, with Swami, with, he talked about Master being the same way. He talked about Master would love to tell jokes... But he said, Master sometimes would become so amused in anticipation of the punchline 
that he would start laughing so heartily that between his laughter and his accent, you had no idea what the punchline was of the joke. But you were so caught up in the joy of it that, of course, it didn't make any difference at all. Anyway, that, that was what I was trying to describe. But even then, even though I believe there was more than just my memories and my imagination putting themselves together, it's not necessary for me to claim it. Do you know what I mean? It's like I could claim it, and that would be nice, but I don't need to, because it stands alone wherever it came from. In other words, the truth of it and what I learned from it and what I... What I uh, you just what I what is able to draw from the experience is what mattered. I don't have to make it more than it was for it to be meaningful to me. And that's a protection that I've always been very careful to keep in place. Um, let's not make things bigger than they are. If they can't stand on their own power, um, just leave it to God to figure out the rest of it. Because if it's not if it doesn't actually give you the right kind of energy and the right kind of clarity, it won't make it more true just by saying it was an angel, it was an inner voice, it was God, it was Guru. Even if it came to you with that face on it, um, be respectful of your own ability to be in error. Be attentive to what's been given to you. Try to, in, in, in practical terms integrated into your life. Because, I mean, it's a good thing, generally speaking, even if it's purely your subconscious, that at least it's handing you divine images. Isn't that great? Instead of dreaming about sports heroes or, you know, or, or Volkswagens full of muffins or something like that, you know, at least you're getting pictures of divine things. That's very positive. It doesn't have to be more than that for it to benefit your life. And if it really is more than that, you don't have to make a big noise about it. It'll show itself in your life. And what Swamiji emphasizes here, and he always puts it this way, first there must be deep calmness. And almost by definition, when it's imagination, we get a little excited about it. You know, wow, I had angels, wow, I had voices, wow, I had Master come and talk to me and told me this. And this is a fine line. Because, of course, Master could come and talk to you and tell you this. It's not because, why would he talk to me? That's not the reason. It's not because we're unworthy. It's because Patanjali says we have to be really careful about wrong understanding. Because, as Swami says, people can make great mistakes in their lives as a consequence of, well, an angel told me to do it. Or a voice told me to do it. Or I had a dream in which it was fine. Now, again, I'm walking a razor's edge here. Um, I remember saying to Swamiji once, I, I've had such difficulty, and it may be just past lives. Perhaps in past lives I've been profoundly misled by false intuition. Because I've always had an extreme caution about it. To the point where for many years I would never even teach the subject of intuition or guidance or anything like that. Because I, I watched, watched so much misunderstanding, I was nervous about... Um, leading people down the wrong path inadvertently just by even bringing up the subject. So I said to Swamiji once on the telephone, Sir, I don't even like to talk about intuition because so many people 
have false intuition and it misleads them. And his answer to me was, Asha, intuition is everything on the spiritual path. You have to teach it. And his concern about people being misguided, he wasn't worried. He didn't disagree with me. He knew that it was true. But he said they have to learn. How else are they going to learn? You can't just hold it back because they'll never make their mistakes if you don't encourage people at least to try. But the saving grace is, is twofold, which is, well, you have to back up a little bit. You have to establish in your life relationship with people whose impersonal wisdom in regard to you, you have at least some trust in. So that you don't have to start when you bring up the fact that you had a visitation from angels and all five of the masters have now told you that this is what you're supposed to do. If that's your first conversation with someone, it's not going to be a good situation. And you don't need, none of us really need a self-realized master to guide us. We just need a good-hearted person who will be honest with us. And sometimes a good friend is better than somebody that we're too afraid to be honest with. So it isn't just a question of some great spiritual authority. It's having relationships with people who will tell you the truth, who are spiritually minded, um, who you have seen are themselves sincere on the spiritual path, and to just keep in touch. Does this sound loony to you? You know, does this does this make any sense? This is what I'm feeling moved to do. Do you think it's a good idea? Swamiji himself, even when he was deeply guided to do things would often say, well, do you think it's a good idea? He almost never, especially for many years, in the later years he became more open, especially at the beginning. It didn't really matter where the inspiration came from, what level within him, he would always present it to us as if it was just an idea. Because he also had profound faith that truth will make itself known, and that if truth is only supported by, as he puts it, special access to some source of inspiration that nobody else can test, um, that's also a reason to be just a little cautious about it. And at the very least, just take it one step at a time. Instead of, you know, burning all your furniture and, and your social security card and taking off your shoes and walking out into the wilderness, you know, there's just like, take it a step at a time. I'm no... I'm no coward when it comes to giving your life to God. But I'm very cautious about mistaking um, imagination for intuition. And I've certainly found over the years that intuition is, is unique and distinctive and you will get to know what it feels like. But it isn't as easy as it appears for all the reasons that he talks about in here. Do we have any questions on any of that? I mean, that doesn't mean that when an angel comes and speaks to you, you say, yeah, prove, prove it. Let me see your ID card. It just means that let it, it, let it prove itself in the cold light of day. I think I've made the point clearly enough. An angel told me to do this. That's wonderful. Let's see if it works. And then let's see how it unfolds. And then... Uh, he says, wrong understanding is most often due to restlessness. And then he goes on to comment about how just unspeakably restless our culture is. It's amazing. Right now we're working on the, the trailer, you know, the little preview thing for our Finding Happiness movie. And every, every iteration has the same comments from us. Can you please slow down these images? 
you know, here we're trying to talk about a peaceful place, peaceful place, you know, a nanosecond on this, a nanosecond on that. Your mind is just completely spinning about being invited into this peaceful place. <laughs> it's just really, it's really impossible. Oh, excuse me. And uh, it's just the way everything is these days. And of course it gets more and more so because you get accustomed to a certain level of frenzy and then you have to make it more frenzied or else you don't feel it. <laughs> you get used to a certain level of speed and if you want to feel speed you have to go faster and faster. So we ourselves just living here in this area are just always in a, a flow of moving energy. And we have to realize that that restlessness is our enemy and it's a constant battle. And that's the difference between true, a really true superconscious experience and something that is, the right word for it is semi-superconscious. And Master has that. It's not like it's black and white. Some of what we have is semi-superconscious. I sort of think that the experience that I had with Swami, the first part of it was just for fun, with Lakshman and the grammatical mistakes. But the moment of laughter went into a different place. You know, that, that moment went somewhere else. And as I said, I don't know what it was really, but it did go somewhere else because I woke up in a, in a state that was completely different than the state of mind that I went to sleep in. But restlessness, and, and that's why again um, he says restlessness because if it's true intuition, we also feel calm within ourselves about it. It's like we know that this is what we're going to do and this is important to do. And we don't have ourselves this frantic need to prove it to people. I've had some experiences where I've, had, I've started with true intuition and then I've messed it up with restlessness. And so on several occasions I've had to just stop. I was pushing something that I knew was true, but I created so much agitation pushing it. One, one notable occasion that I finally wrote everybody involved and said, I be, you know, whether or not my first intuition was true, now I realize we've just, I've gone so far off track. And then I, I resigned from the discussion. And everything settled out and came right back exactly to where I had started. Which was not to say that I was right, but it was true. But I was mess- messing it up. Nobody could, nobody could tell what was supposed to happen because there was too much restless agitation. So that's also the other thing we have to remember. Okay. And then he just talks about just the ability of the human mind to hear what it wants to hear. And he tells that story that he's told several times about, you know, master speaking, even, this is what you were asking about, Art, just like, there's the, the guru himself. And he says to Oliver Rogers, you have clear sailing. Meaning, you know, your spiritual path, you have no obstacles now. All the other disciples in the room, what about me, what about me, what about me? And master being so kind didn't want to say, I'm only talking to Oliver, what could you be thinking? You know, he wants to, them all to feel encouraged, so he says, well, you'll also all have clear sailing if you stay in tune. And they walked out of the room hearing that they had been given exactly the same comment that Oliver had. But if they had been at all attentive to any aspect of what was going on, they would have also observed the fact that they forced Master into saying that that it was not volunteered from Master, but they pressed him. If they had any 
um, impartial wisdom, they would have realized, they would have understood Master's nature, the necessity of him offering them encouragement. I mean, just many things which were self-evident to Swamiji because Swamiji was standing outside a little bit of it. I mean, he was trying hard to perceive the situation as it really was, not merely as he wanted it. I've been with Swamiji enough to have watched. In heavens, I've done all those stories about Swamiji and received so many people's stories, and some I couldn't use because there was a misunderstanding. There was a misperception by the individual about what was really happening. And uh, I couldn't print it. I couldn't stand behind their misinterpretations. I mean, that wasn't true of many. I mean, it wasn't like many, many like that. Most people didn't, didn't understand sometimes as clearly as I did what had actually happened to them. And the process of writing all those stories, even some of the miracle stories, it was true was also, for me, helping people to understand what had actually happened to them. Um, either because I knew, because Swamiji had... I, I knew the front and the back of the whole story, or because I knew Swamiji enough to know that when he responded that way, that was what he really meant. And, and for the most part, the vast majority of cases, it was a very um, uplifting and edifying experience for the people involved, because it helped them to draw to a clearer focus. But in some cases, it was just, you know, a determination to believe a certain thing, and, well, that was just where it had to stay. Um, And, you know, it it works itself out in the end. The disciples who are not having clear sailing have to sort of stop and think, what did he actually say to me, and why did he say it? Swami uses that wonderful word, if, from the great uh, letter from the Persians to the Spartans, the Persians telling all the things that were going to happen to the poor Spartans, you know, if the Persians won. And the Spartans wrote back the word if, (laughs) because everything depended on that, if they won, which they didn't, they were defeated. And so um, he says that wrong understanding is one of the main obstacles to all of life, because we misperceive the situation. He uses the example of the young person who thinks they're going to be rich. Every young person thinks they're going to be rich. You live in a big house, Every sick person wants to be well, but very few people actually want to do the things that are needed to bring about those results. That's just a fundamental wrong understanding about life. It's really all pervasive in our present time because we've been through such an extraordinary period of wealth. I know some of you have heard me say this before, but I heard an interview on the radio of some young men who started some business in college and then then sold the business for millions and millions of dollars. And the radio interview was talking to a 24 and 25-year-old person saying, how do you feel having already earned more money than your fathers earned in their entire lifetimes? And the young men said, well, why not? We devoted two years of our life to this. <laughs> now, in fact, it was a fact. They devoted two years and then they reaped those profits. But there's a tremendous wrong understanding about the relationship between effort and reward. And so, so people expect and want reward, but have a, a wrong understanding of what effort is required. And this is what he's saying, especially on the spiritual path. But in every aspect of life, we are not concentrating. I, it came to me in these terms recently. People want success, but they're not striving for personal excellence. 
which is a great deal of difference. Personal excellence is every day, what can I do? Every day, what can I learn? Every day, how can I serve? Every day, how can I expand? And instead we have this idea of the success we're going to have, but we're not really thinking about where I'm standing and how can I actually expand everything about myself with my next step. Because that success means there's going to be a huge expansion from where I am to where I'm going. Whether it's an expansion of wealth, power, position, knowledge, expertise, whatever you call it. But it has to be, if we're not standing in it now, there has to be an expansion to get there. So the question is not what is it that I'm trying to achieve, but how do I expand from where I'm standing into that reality? Whether that's practical, you know, practical work steps. One very successful salesman who had such a positive attitude said, I only sell one out of ten, so I, get, I have to hurry around to get my nine rejections in. And every time I, I get rejected, I feel more and more enthusiastic because I know that, you know, sooner or later somebody's going to say yes. Of course, if he just didn't give himself to each one of those nine because he never knew which was going to be the right one. And that was just his way of saying, it's going to work, I know. That's part of right understanding of how you really generate energy. We talked about this a lot in the material success course. But it was one of the things that was really obvious in Swami's material success course. He made it very, very clear the difference between striving for excellent moment by moment and just desiring success. So, spiritually speaking, it's exactly the same, except that other more subtle confusions set in. We, we, we just decide, we get caught up in the ego. There's no other way. It's just, it's a very... Um, on one hand, it's not difficult at all, um, it, it, but it's this razor's edge between complete confidence in your relationship with God and your own potential for self-realization and absolutely no confidence in anything that you think or know. Um, because if we're, if, we're all, if we're trying to protect ourselves, and he talks about this in a later sutra that will come up in a moment, um, if, we're, if we're trying to justify the position we're already in, if we're not able to just impersonally be interested in what's true, it's the ego that always poisons us if there's that little bit of a need to be right. He says here, um, a man starts out thinking on the spiritual path, I know what I need. And to make it more complicated, you see, in order to, to get on the spiritual path, you have to have enough imagination and enough confidence that even though the whole world is going in one direction, I'm going to go in another direction. And so there is, there has to be a a powerful self-directed sense. Um, Because I know I've been a yogi many lifetimes before, it just never crossed my mind ever when I began to find the spiritual path and found Ananda and met Swami. I, I mean, I've been, I feel very fortunate and I fall on my knees and thank God really often. I'm not presenting this as anything, but thank you, Lord, because anything less, I don't know what would have happened to me. But it's just like, I never thought that they were right. I never thought that society as a whole and what it was offering me was right. 
I never thought that the stories they were telling me about what I had to do and what I needed to do, I never thought they were right. I just thought they were wrong. And I was totally confused because I didn't know there was an alternative. But there was always in me this very strong sense that they, that they weren't telling me the truth. So when somebody finally did tell me the truth, I was all set to take it. But what happens on the spiritual path is that necessity to separate yourself from the mass consciousness, sometimes we don't know that now we have to shed that. And now what we have to do is to become extremely receptive without in any way becoming less powerful inside. I don't know if that's communicating, but it's very... And, you know, we're not, we're not in a direct relationship with Master in an ashram where he's literally telling us what to do. So, but, but we write here, the first needs of a disciple are obedience, humility, devotion to the guru as a channel for God, and complete openness to whatever he gives them. But we can't feel for a moment that it's not possible to have those relationships. It's just we have to be very sensitive as to how they're being expressed to us. You know, complete obedience. What are we being obedient to? You know, we're, we're having to be obedient to the teachings. We're having to be obedient to the principles. We're having to be obedient to God when he speaks to us. And because we don't have, you know, Yogananda sitting in his living room, we don't even have Swamiji anymore to whom we can write a letter, we have to be able to feel that inside but not make a mistake. So this is all in the same, you know, in the same sutra. Not to, use, not to get caught up in imagination, but not to get blinded by ego either. And even though this all sounds difficult, it isn't as hard as it sounds. Because the entire basis of it all is sincerity above all. Just really deep sincerity. And he writes here, many disciples come to the world, let's see where it is, why are you, one of the first needs of the spiritual path is right understanding of why you are here. Why have you directed your life in a spiritual way? You know, are you really just wanting to be an important disciple? Are you really, are you wanting to be in tune with God? And you know, all of us have these multi-levels of confusion. We just have to work our way through it. Humility. Humil- here's, what, here's the important word about humility. And it's the word that Master uses. We think of humility as self-abasement, which is, oh, I'm nothing, I'm no one, why would anyone want me? But humility is self-honesty. And that's what we have to work with. And self-honesty can see things as they are. You know, I have certain talents, I have certain energy, I have certain dedication, but so what? It's, it's just to call, thing, call something what it is is not to have exaggerated self-importance. Not to call something what it is is to have exaggerated unimportance. And both of them are equally off. It's making too much of yourself. And so the right kind of humility is exactly what we need. I'm good at this and I'm not good at that. You know, this is a virtue I have developed and this is where I have to be careful. This is a strength I have. Yes, I can handle that. No, I think that would be beyond me. And cultivating that honest attitude um, saves us. Devotion to the Guru is a channel for God 
in complete openness to whatever he gives. Well, we have to be open, basically, to everything that comes to us, because we don't really know where anything is coming from. We have to be open to understand and evaluate it in the right way. You know, Swamiji was so strong in himself. He was so humble in certain ways, and then just so strong in himself. You couldn't... He himself said that. He said, I'm annoying. He said, I annoy people because if I don't feel it for myself, I just won't do it. And he even expressed a little bit of sympathy for the people in SRF who threw him out. You know, in the sense of it's just... Um, he, he's very, he's kind, he won't argue, he won't get into a fight about it, but if he doesn't really feel it himself, he just won't do it. Just quietly, without making a scene, but he'll just absolutely hold his position. Because it's not humility not to be who you are. You know, you, you need to have that strength of character and just have it all in right understanding, so... And then he says, the mind is inclined to self-deception born of wishful thinking and ego protectiveness, hence the absolute need for a guru. I mean, sometimes we have to have those lines. The mind is inclined to self-deception born of wishful thinking and ego protectiveness. Oh, all right. I'll keep that one in mind. But it's, it's you just kind of have a healthy respect for your ability to be wrong. That's what it means. Just like, oh, yeah. Just because I think it's true doesn't mean it's true. I might be right, but maybe I'm not. My dear husband so sweetly said to me once, you're not right as often as you think you are. (laughs) I love that, though. It's been one of the most helpful things he's ever said to me. And I just remember it. When I'm pushing hard on something, I just stop and think, I'm not always right. Sometimes I am. You know, sometimes my point really is well taken. But sometimes it's not. And even just to stop for just a minute and say, Huh, who knows, maybe I'm wrong. And then you just kind of let it work itself out. And that's, that's what I mean about just have the right understanding. It doesn't mean that you aren't right, but just having a healthy belief that you might not be allows God's will to express itself a little more easily. Okay, any questions or thoughts about that one before we go on to the next? That's wrong understanding. Okay. Now he says... Understanding, sutra number one, number nine, understanding that that is based on untruth is imaginary. And this is going back to him saying that imagination is one of the vrittis. Um, Swamiji, when he was describing it in that one, talked about how imagination can be either helpful or harmful, whether we use it to spur creativity, to see possibilities where possibilities are not obvious, um, or whether we use it to live in a, in a dream world. So here he's saying self-justification is never safe. So we're just coming back to that. Um, if one is inclined to self-justification, it would be very important to try to develop an awareness of the generic signs of self-justification. Remember how I've talked to you about how I've been able to change some bad habits by understanding the tone of voice that I use when I am in a certain little delusion? And then I began to understand whenever I heard that tone of voice, whatever I was saying, it got me out of logic. It just was like, this is a red flag that I'm not where I want to be. And if we have a tendency to exonerate the ego... I mean, some of the ways that self-justification work 
are when we start explaining to other people how, yes, I may have responded badly, but it wouldn't have happened if you had behaved correctly. That's one of the ways that we do it, that we sort of brush off the fact that, yes, I did something wrong, but it was actually your action that made me do the wrong thing. You know, just hearing in any way that instead of just taking a very simple, sometimes when people try to write emails where they're going to um, accept blame, I remember I was helping someone write an email which was an email that was basically, I'm wrong. Their version of the email was three paragraphs. And the I'm wrong didn't come until the bottom of the third paragraph. What are all these sentences about? You know, the first sentence should be, I'm wrong. You know, and, and then if you find yourself wanting to explain too much, be a little suspicious. Whenever you're trying to explain too much how and why it happened, it's rarely genuine self-interest for the good of all. It's almost always some reason why you, you can't just take the blame and just let it be. Um, because self-justification is just, well, it's never safe, that's how we put it. It attempts to exonerate what is anyway a lie. That's how he puts it, which is the ego. Which is anything that is trying to make me look better. And Swamiji takes a very extreme point of view. On, took a very extreme point of view on this. Basically said he would never defend himself. Just, he just wouldn't defend himself, even if what somebody was saying to him was completely false. It was, his point of view was, why would I defend myself? I don't want to be in the ego. I don't want to say how the ego was really all right. If somebody wants to tell me that, you know, on that level, everything I've done is wrong, let them. And uh, it made him a terrible witness when we were being sued. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't merely that he said the minimum instead of the maximum. It was the tone of voice in which he said it. He just said it in the most indifferent tone of voice. And it was, as you can well imagine, completely impossible for anyone, like, the, like a jury, to have the foggiest idea where he was coming from. You know, it just made him seem aloof in a way that was not particularly attractive to them. But he was aloof. He was completely aloof from what everyone else is engaged in, which is the necessity to justify themselves and to look good. It was, was just... You know, he had to be there. It, it was required of him, but his relationship to it was profoundly spiritual. And, and, and that, boy, that's not easy. Believe me, it's just like so much of us wants to come up. But see, again, superconscious is calm. Even when there's that agitation, like, I really need to say this. Sometimes, again, now, I re- now that I think about it, this was starting many years ago, how could I tell whether I was divinely inspired or ego-motivated if I was really anxious to say it? In other words, if I was restless and I really felt that I had to say this, but it was not um, a calm sense of being called to say it. It was the restlessness of needing to say something. And I began to learn that when I felt that restless compulsion to speak, that was the time not to. And if I just waited and, and offered it to Divine Mother, if you want this said, give me an opportunity to say it. It was very interesting to me how often the opportunity would come back. 
because it wasn't sometimes that I was entirely wrong, I was just corrupting that guidance with ego. ego. And so self-justification is a little bit like that. It, it, it's your restless ego becomes a little desperate to defend itself. These are the generic signs that you can look for. You know, It's hard, really hard, just to not do it. Okay, it is safest for the sincere seeker to assume himself in some way to be in the wrong and not try to defend himself. Seek the truth always under all circumstances and rid your mind of any temptation to justify. Um, You're always in the wrong in the sense that God is always right. I mean, I I think I've explained to you sometimes where sometimes the details are entirely false, but the situation is still exactly what it needs to be. Swamiji tells about the time when he was with Master and he got engaged with that group that was really very negative in what they were trying to do, but they had presented this whole reform movement of SRF, and then they, they were sort of telling everybody what to do, and Swami got swept up in it, and Um, excoriated one of the older nuns for not going along with what Master wanted. And then it turned out that it was all just um, the monks, just they they were not really being guided by Master or by God. And then Master called them all on the carpet. And even though, as Swami put it, he'd been really quite peripheral to it, Master spent most of the um, scolding directed at Swamiji. And part of Swami was trying to say, but sir, I hardly had anything to do with this. But then he realized later that the mere fact that he felt so resistant to the correction told him that there was much in him that needed to be corrected. And so oftentimes we can calm our sense of self-justification by finding another reason why this is a good thing to be happening. You know, just the mere sense of embarrassment or the tension that it creates within us. We learn a lot of things about ourselves. Oh, you know, look how attached I am to looking good, to being right. And we we try to find another way because otherwise um, we're imagining the facts of a situation and that imagination just creates another vritti and that vritti just keeps us bound on this wheel of confusion. Um, it's very good, as Swami says, to remember why we're on the spiritual path. We're here to dissolve the rittis and to overcome the ego, period. This is not a path of psychology. And you have to have a certain amount of psychological health to be on the path, but this is not, a, this is not about getting a good, solid, functioning ego and then asserting it on the world. We're going in a wholly other direction here. Okay, shall we take a break? Okay, let's take a break. Any comments or thoughts on anything we discussed up until now? All right. So now we're coming to sleep, and this again, as I remind you, we're just pulling all of these individually out of Sutra 6 again. Sleep is attachment to nothingness. I love this one. Swami has a long conversation. First he begins by agreeing with Patanjali that sleep is counterfeit samadhi. And it is really... Now, what we're, what we're working with here, um, sleep is like is an intoxicant, is the way you understand this. The three major delusions are wine, sexuality, and money. Money represents power, 
external power in the world because money is all about power. Um, sexuality is what it is, but sleep it falls under the category of intoxicant. We were having a discussion about this this morning. And, and why it's such a huge delusion is this, that we imagine that the way to decrease our suffering is to diminish our awareness. And that's, that's what the delusion is. It's not so much that people like being drunk or being on drugs or things like that, but it's, I feel terrible, I'm going to in some way diminish my awareness and then that's going to make me feel better. And the reason it's such a terrible delusion is because, in fact, the way we, we escape from suffering is to become infinite in our awareness. Because as long as we are working from our vrittis, from our desires, from likes and dislikes, we are dividing the world into that which causes us happiness and that which causes us pain, which is again why Swami was being very profound when he said, I don't think about anything in this world as being happiness producing anymore. The only thing that produces happiness is my own inner bliss. And even those things that were on their own terms, you know, happy experiences, they don't compare to the transcending of all of it. And so the idea of going to sleep, which, you know, all of us like to sleep, most of us like to sleep. Um, I'll speak for myself. I like to sleep. I don't know if I'm talking for everyone here or not. Yeah, I remember once when I had to work... um, all night, once, this was many years ago, just in a project that I had to do, and I, I worked, so I was up for 36 hours. And because I worked all night, and then I had to work all day, and for some reason the energy was there. And about six or seven in the evening, the second night when I should be going to sleep, I still wasn't tired, but I was tired of being awake. I just had had enough of being awake. I wanted now to be asleep. And I... I realize how often, and I've mentioned this about Swamiji, a lot of times he did not enjoy subconsciousness. He did not enjoy tamasic energy, and he only slept. He only slept just when he needed to sleep. Otherwise, he would work or do something. He would do something creative. He found much more enjoyment from putting out energy than from not putting out energy. And I mean, speaking for myself, I'm in between. I'm always happier when I put out energy. But then the thought will come back to me that it would be nice not to. And I, I, knew in, I know in him that he had just defeated that thought. That, that thought had never come into him. So in this sense, sleep is attachment to nothingness. It's just wanting to be, thinking that we'll be happy if we can escape consciousness altogether. Counterfeit samadhi, he calls it. A little sleep is a human necessity, but too much is a drug. And there he's saying it's, it becomes a habit of the mind to enjoy um, nothingness rather than to enjoy everythingness. Um, So that's where you have to fight it. You can fight it in terms of actually how many hours you sleep, but you can also fight it in terms of that inner attitude. And then you'll be able to discern between what you actually need to sleep and what you simply want to sleep. I mean, many people escape through sleep. I knew a man, he was a master after he could sleep 20 hours a day when he had something that he really had to do that he didn't want to do. I mean, he was just superb at it. He could just put himself to sleep, just as a way to escape. But now then, Swamiji sort of talks about the fact also that sometimes when you relax the conscious mind, sleep becomes the means through which superconsciousness often enters. 
I know when I, often when I'm dealing with a creative problem, I will actually just take a nap. Because I know that if I can just relax for just a moment, then often it'll be there. And often I'll say before I go to sleep, I need to solve this. And I'll sleep for ten minutes or so like that, and then I'll wake up with the answer. Because my conscious mind in some way is blocking it, and if I can let the conscious mind down... And so Swami is speaking to that. But of course, if you really think about it, that's not sleeping to go into nothingness. That's just recognizing. And Swamiji actually... You know, when he would go to sleep, he, he, he's right. A lot of his music would come to him when he was asleep. He would very often hear his music when he was sleeping. He would wake up with the melodies. And, but those, that's not a subconscious kind of sleeping. Master said once, he said, last night when I went to sleep, I experimented with subconsciousness. You remember what he said? It was terrible. He said, walled in by thick walls of flesh. Hemmed in by thick walls of flesh is how he described it. It just gives you an idea of where we are and where we're going. So the desire for nothingness is what we're really trying to combat. Every time I go through an experience of you know, high creative energy, whether it's an hour or a day or a week or months of it, I remind myself, this is what real joy is. High energy is where joy comes from, not from escaping. And you just have to constantly just keep affirming the right reality until we can uh, wean ourselves by our own experience from these things. And then you remember, oh, I have this work to do, I think I just won't do it. And then you think, no, I'll be much, I'll be much more enjoyable to do this. I think I'll just go to bed or whatever it is. No, I'll be much happier if I put out energy. And every time you, you have the right action, affirm deeply within yourself the memory of it. This is the reverse, but a friend of mine, even though she wasn't a yogi consciously as a child, uh, someone who's deep into Ananda now, when she was ten years old, she said to herself, being a child is no fun, don't forget. (laughs) Everyone thinks it's really great to be a child. It's no fun, don't forget. Later she realized what she was saying to herself. You know, that just, don't get fooled. So whenever we have clarity, say to yourself, don't get fooled, and then you can remember. I remember once when I, I used to give in to tears a lot more. It was more of my way of operating. And I started to get upset about something, and I stretched out on the bed to cry. And I, just as I was about to let that, you know, all the women in the room know what I'm talking about, that feeling come over you, I thought, oh. It's so tiring to cry. If I cry, it's just going to exhaust me. It's going to be hours before I feel well again. And then in the end, I'm just going to get over it. Just don't bother. And I just got up and just went back to my life. And I, I was so proud of myself. You know, it finally had gotten through. You know, I, I remembered that they say I remembered at the front instead of just remembering at the end. That there's just, there's no necessity to go through this because when you're finished, you're going to be exactly where you all are, only tired. So just skip it, like that. And so we can affirm these realities. This is, this is right concept versus wrong concept. And then Swami gives us this marvelous suggestion about how if everybody in the world meditated for 15 minutes a day that we'd change the whole planet. Um, I love what he says. 15 minutes of this practice every day indulged by thousands or even millions of people throughout the world could uplift the whole planet. 
He just puts that in the middle of this book. I love it. And then says, oh yeah, Ananda Ma had this same idea. Just a complete non-sectarian, not even religious. But just think, if everybody in the world calmed down, you know, turned off the radio, the television, and everything for 15 minutes a day, just think how the planet would be. And Dwapara Yuga, this book will last a long time. He even teaches everybody Hong Saw, just right in the middle of this, just so they'll know. Yes, Arthur? I think he's also kind of sneaky about it. He doesn't even use the word meditation. Mm-hmm. So. He's just saying if people just calm down for 15 minutes a day, just sat quietly. <laughs> Amazing. I Swamiji never, never, ever... What do I say? He sort of said one point, he said, uh, I, I can't think of the exact way he phrased it, but it was, I know not everybody in the whole world is going to embrace these teachings, but I like to believe that if I can just say it in the right way, they will. <laughs> he said, it keeps me going. <laughs> so, now we come to memory. Memory is clinging to, refusing to abandon any ideas of objects that return to the mind. That's not terribly clear. Memory is clinging to, refusing to abandon any ideas of objects that return to the mind. Memory is one more vritti, he says. And here, when he was talking about memory earlier, he said, memory can make us dream in vain of a vanished past. On the other hand, a clear memory can give us clues to nagging present problems that seem to defy solution. In the highest spiritual sense, Memory is what, remember, what causes us to remember our divine self, which is smriti. Smriti is the realization that, oh, I'm, I'm a lion um, who's been raised by ducks. You know, this is here I am this morning, uh, yesterday, when I, was com- when I was still at Ananda village. I was driving back from where Swami's uh, casket is and just coming by where the goats and all the animals are. And just at that point, a line of ducks starts across the path. You know, just... Swamiji once said, and I always find it intriguing, he said, every sentient creature, every creature, is just the same. It's just egos somewhere on a spectrum. Even animals are just way lower on the spectrum, but they're not fundamentally different. They have their own likes and dislikes and their little personalities. And so I'm watching these ducks, who are not God's brightest creatures, just sort of... <laughs> coming across the path like this and they there was a line of cars behind me because we were all coming down from meditation and I was the first car and they, I'm sure people just wonder why I'm just sitting here because the ducks were just in front of my car nobody could see them only when they began to emerge you know I could sort of feel everybody behind me thinking why is she just sitting here so I felt their impatience so I honked the horn you honk at a duck he just honks back he thinks you're just having conversation <laughs> I mean, it was just hopeless. I'm just sitting here honking. I just, you know, just being these dumb ducks. Finally, Virani, the mother of all the animals there, the human mother of all those animals, she gets out and she, she makes a big noise with the grain and sprinkles the grain. And We have a little conversation. I said, honking doesn't work with ducks. And she said, sure, no. <laughs> they don't care at all. They're just going to just be there. Now, why am I talking about this? It had something to do with something. The spectrum of consciousness, the memory of different things. I think I can't even remember why I brought it up. Pardon me. Oh, a lion that was brought up. Oh, yes, that's where I got it. The lion that was brought up as a sheep. 
But that's what I was thinking. There's always the story about the swan that's with the ducklings. That's where it came to my mind. That someday we remember that this isn't who we are. You know, and just watching those ducks living so deeply in ductum. <laughs> and here we are, and we have all this really, we seriously do, we have all these really strong memories of the life that we've lived. We remember our childhood, we remember all the influences on our lives. We think about everything that made us who we are. And, you know, it's, I'm of two minds. I'm not a very, I'm not a, myself a very sentimental person, and therefore I can often be a little harsh about things that are other people consider precious and I don't really want to be that way. But there's a certain point at which you ask yourself, how much of my past do I want to affirm? How, you know, how much do I want to define myself? I find myself often referring to being raised Jewish. But at a certain point I thought, why do I keep mentioning that? What difference does it make? You know, why keep saying anything about who and what we were? Um, it's not like a clear memory helps us understand our present reality and speaking of being Jewish it enormously influenced me in certain ways and it's been helpful for me to know that but at a certain point why would we want to remember anything like that Just what difference does it make here I am right now remember when Sister Gyanamata somebody had uh, said to her that she was uh, some great saint in the past. She said, what do I care? She said, in this life I'm Gyanamata, and she wrote to master the work of your hands. And everything else is irrelevant. There's such freedom in that, isn't there? And even if we can't go there, it's sometimes it's worth, you know, aspiring to. That's why yogis oftener just seem so austere, because we don't celebrate a lot of things that other people feel is worth celebrating. It's a very fine line, but it is definitely worth remembering. It's memory is just one more vritti. Desires, attachments, memory, so also is the urge to sleep. He's just listing them all out. All these must be overcome. Sometimes when I have seen older people, when my father, the last couple of years of his life, he was in a, um, he was actually in a sunrise home, just like the one up the road here, but in southern Sunrise. I always call it sunset, but I know they don't call it sunset. <laughs> Every time I say that, he lived in a sunset place, and then I think, why would they have called it sunset? I mean, I would have called it sunset, but they wouldn't have called it sunset. When uh, I've always thought that uh, Ananda self-realizationists have a huge service that we could do in hospice work, especially really helping people in the moment of transition or in the hours of transition, so I wanted to call that, I was going to call a business, I was going to call it Angels of Death. <laughs> People persuaded me that that was not good marketing. So I would have called it Sunset, but that really is not a good idea. But we could be Angels of Death, seems like a really nice thing, but I'm not sentimental. But when my father was in this place, um, you know, so many people were surrounded by the objects of their life their awards, their careers, their pictures of their family and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And, you know, just, you just go into some of these rooms and it, it would just almost be overwhelming with everything that they were identified with. And I thought about, you know, the Indian tradition of at a certain point you just turn your back on all of it and you just go out into the forest. 
In the Mahabharata, there comes a time where the older generation says, we've just had enough. And they just walk out into the forest. Because very shortly, you're going to have to discard it all anyway. So why not be ready for that so that you don't cling? I really admired my, my mother-in-law, David's mother. She lived into her mid-80s. She was a very... Um, she was a very fine, forceful woman. You could, David's a chip off the old block. But, uh, you know, so many people in their elder years just accumulate more and more and more. Her house was absolutely spare. She had a few, even photos of the family. She had just a few. And, and you opened her closet, she had just what she needed. You know, she had just let it go as she went along. I thought, wow, that's, that's a really good example for all of us, so that we just don't keep reinforcing the memory of all these things. It's just a vritti. Why would we want to be there? That just makes us, when we're born the next time, we're just all that more bad enough that we had to do it in this lifetime with all due respect. We don't want to just bind ourselves up again and again, so we're searching for all that stuff next time. I mean, literally coming back to the same house looking for the same stuff. I always laugh when people go buy antiques. You know, did you actually own this in some previous life? We went in, in Carmel. We were with Swamiji once. Somewhere in Crystal Hermitage, it used to be in the little gallery there, there's this very old um, carved wooden chair, not that ostentatious, you know, just not much bigger than one of those. But it was a carved chair, and it has a painting of a Maharaja on the back. There were actually two of them in the store. There was the Maharaja and the Maharani. And they were... They were real chairs from somewhere, and Swami just went right to it and bought it. I thought, you know, was this his? Did he sit on this? Because his purchase of it was, to my mind, inexplicable at the time. But I just wonder, if you're just going back and getting your own stuff, I mean, why? Yeah, I think a lot of times you are. You're buying your own things again. Let's not do that. I mean, antiques are beautiful, so I don't want to say if people go out and buy beautiful old things that they're always doing that. But still... You know, just let it go. Let's not just dwell on these things. Let's let it go. Okay. Yes. Question. Yes. Sort of an observation and a question. Um, as yogis, uh, we often value, of course, natural being as conscious as possible at all times. Uh-huh. And one of those times uh, would certainly be during the transition of passing into death. Uh-huh. And uh, so some of my concern is, I, is I, I sort of wonder, I just kind of hope that uh, I have the, I don't um, deteriorate so much in these later years that I am less likely to be conscious at that time. Uh, I would consider it a real blessing to just be gone like that when I'm vividly consciousness. Now what about as, a, um, as an intentional uh, way of life toward the end if we all wandered into the forest while we still had our faculties. Wouldn't that be a good idea? <laughs> yeah, Seriously. Well, okay, that is a serious question, so let me, let me hold it for a minute. Um, the physical brain is not the consciousness. So what happens to the physical brain is not what's happening to the consciousness. When Kamala uh, Silva, who was Master's disciple, became completely senile and I was so concerned about it. And Swami said to me, oh, it's just her mind. It's just All she's lost is her mind. He said it so casually to me. And I said, sir, it's her mind. And then when I met her, it was clear to me that all she had lost was her mind, that her consciousness was completely intact. She was just joyful and in the moment, Helen's mother, 
actually, who was a very fine and, and uh, very fine and uh, dignified and spiritual person. She also lost a lot of her faculties, and I didn't even meet her until the end. I just know about her from Helen. But I met her when she was already largely diminished. And it was, again, it was so clear to me that she had lost so many of her faculties, but her consciousness, I mean, just immediately I could feel the, the power of this woman, even though there was nothing, almost nothing of the, you know, mother of nine children managing that household that she'd been all of her life. So that's the first part of it. My father, in the last couple of years of his life, was greatly diminished, and he would use words in ways that we would have these conversations in which, you know, his words were completely nonsensical almost. He would just kind of randomly put sentences together and use words that had been part of his earlier life. And I would answer him, and then toward the end he lost the ability to talk, and I would just talk to him. But I was, again, I often wondered, like, what, why does this happen? What does this mean? In his case, it was fascinating to me, when he lost his rational faculties, it was like he was able to relax into his heart. And so the last years of his life, this incredible sweetness came out of him because there had been a certain mental tension. He was always trying to hold the world together in this very Virgo-esque fashion, which tended to annoy me. And when he wasn't able to do that anymore, this whole other side of his consciousness came out. So it's, it's very hard to measure. I, I, I wouldn't have taken that away from him for anything in the world. Even in a situation like coma, I don't think we can be presumptuous exactly. about exactly what's going on in there. Yeah. And I know uh, Roger C. spent the last years of his incarnation, I believe our last months, in a coma. Yeah. And he was such an advanced person that uh, we would be really presumptuous to even consider pulling the plug on him. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just, you just can't, you don't know what the karma is. And, and in the same way, you can't throw away your own body. You don't know. You just have to let a cycle run. Yeah, so I mean, The I've, answer is probably, to my question, is to probably just stay as conscious as you can where you are and do what you can with what's right in front of you at all times. And uh, trust God. Exactly. This is the, com- the, the, com- the class before we turned on the recorder was how do you overcome all of this, everything? The answer is love God. Devotion takes care of, Devotion takes care of everything. There's no other universal solution to everything except to love God. If you just love God, everything else follows from that. We worry about all these details, just love God, and then it all works out. That was Kamala, that was Helen's mother. My father was not at all a consciously spiritual person, but his loving nature came forward. He loved what he loved, which was life, you know, my mother, me, in his own way. And my brother and sister, I don't want to say just me, but, you know, Okay, I think that's the end of the story for tonight. Thank you. We actually, you know, trundled right through several sutras, which is very unusual. So we're now up to 112. Okay.